0: Welcome to Photographers Talking, the podcast that brings you some of the most innovative and respected photographers in the business. We'll find out what goes on behind the camera and why it's every bit as interesting as the images you see. I'm Chris McNulty, I've been a photographer and picture editor for over 20 years and I'll introduce you to the people who make the most dynamic and interesting images in the world today.
1: Well you kind of do this at your own risk. If something happens, I'm not sure we can do anything about it, so think about that.
0: Lynn McEwen is a former newspaper photographer. She covered stories including the fall of the Berlin Wall, the first Gulf War and every job that you can imagine throughout the 80s, 90s and 2000s. She has worked for titles including the Glasgow Herald, Western Mail and Daily Mirror. She is now a crime writer and I began by asking Lynn to tell us about her new book.
1: This is my uh, debut crime novel. It's the first in the DI Shona Oliver series. And it's set on the Solway Firth, on the border between Scotland and England. And Shona is also a lifeboat volunteer, in addition to being a police officer. And when she recovers a woman's body, the case initially goes to Cumbria, but the police in Cumbria soon come back to Shona looking for help. And as she investigates, she uncovers links to her own patch, but also to her own past. And those threaten everything that she holds dear.
0: And I suppose we should also mention at the, the top here the, the name of the book and the, the, the publisher as well and where, where people can buy this book.
1: That's right. It's called In Dark Water and it's published by Canelo and it's available um, online and in bookshops, in ebook, paperback. And there's an audio book coming very shortly.
0: We'll get back uh, into the new direction you've taken in your career in a minute. How did you get into photography?
1: Okay. At the the very beginning, I I started doing uh, photography as part of an art hire. I started doing this at school and I got um, very enthusiastic about it quite young. And um, partly this was because my, the art teacher that I had was actually Liz Lockhead, who went on to become obviously Poet Laureate of Scotland.
0: (laughs) Who went on to become Liz Lockhead. She went on to become Liz
1: Lockhead. um, And uh, she was my art teacher. And um, she uh, decided that I would be better in another class which uh, focused less on uh, painting as the main topic and more on photography. And this was absolutely the best thing that could have ever happened to me because um, I, w- I just had this desire to make these pictures. But technically, to be fair, I wasn't really up to it with, with, on the painting side. So I, I started off there and then I went to Glasgow College of Printing, as I believe you did yourself, Chris. And I did, I did the, indeed, yeah. I did the course. There and that was in the early 1980s, and then when I'd I'd finished that, um, I did I did have uh, a a desire really to to kind of continue in the education aspect of that. And I was there was a uh, this was at the point where Thomas Joshua Cooper was just starting the fine art photography program at Glasgow School of Art, and I did consider going there because I'm very interested in early process in large format work as well. But at the same point, I got a part time job with an agency, a photography agency, a, a press agency in Inverness. And from there, I came back to Glasgow and then I freelanced for the Glasgow Herald. And at that point, it was George Wilkie who was a um, picture editor at that. And he said, I think, uh, you know, this this is the area you should, you should stick with, but go and get a bit more experience with a newspaper, a regional newspaper in England and, you know, come back and see me. So I did that. I went to work in Wales. I went to work for the Western Mail down in Wales. But one thing and another happened and um, I never, I haven't yet managed to get back to Scotland. So
0: The Herald really was a, a big, well-respected paper at that time, wasn't it? It really was one of the, the kind of heavyweights, um, in Britain, wasn't it? it was, I mean, it was. It's a regional paper, and it was mostly a Glasgow paper, I suppose. But it really was well respected, and as much for its photography as its as its reporting, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they definitely had the attitude, you know, we are a national newspaper, and yeah. you know, you, a bit more regional experience will help you. And they they, they treated you know photography as um, uh, a very important part of, of how you, you told the story. And I remember him saying to me, you know, when you go out um, on an assignment, make sure that you're obviously looking for the bull picture. You're looking for the key picture that's going to tell this story. But I don't want you to come back with just one picture. I want you to come back with five or six. I want you to think about the narrative. I want you to think about the pictures that might go before and the pictures that might go after this key picture. And that's partly to do with the practicalities of newspapers at the time. Because if we suddenly have space and we can use this as, you know, three or four pictures rather than one picture, then, you know, the material's there. So you were always overshooting, if you like. You were never going out and thinking, right, this is just going to be a single picture with, you know, a deep caption. There's always the possibility that everything you did would blossom into a feature, for example. Um, And also he said, you know, this is a benefit to you because at that point you got paid by picture. <laughs> so oh, if you, got, right, okay, if you yeah. got more than one picture and you got more than one, you know, fee. So it, it, was a, it was a great way to think about it, though, and a great way to explore that idea of, of visual narrative um, as yeah. something different from just an illustration of the words.
0: Yeah, telling a story is always a good thing to have in your mind, isn't it? Um, when you're yeah. taking pictures, because... It makes you aware of the surroundings you're in. You're looking left and right, and you know behind you, everywhere that there might be another picture. You're constantly scanning the the environment to see what could make uh, and what what could add to to the story that you're trying to tell.
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's absolutely the case. That that kind of working, that kind of visual muscle, you know, it just it's it's partly about practice, and it's it's all about awareness. And there was a, I remember there was a uh, an old, an old hack of a a photographer, a guy called Jack Middleton, who was kind of famous in in those uh, newspaper circles at that time. He was, you know, he was thinking he was even shorter than me. He was about five foot, very battered, very streetwise. Um, And he always came back with the film. He always shot all these pictures at um, 125th of a second, at f5.6. Didn't matter what he was doing. That's what he set his camera at. He was a brilliant photographer at catching that moment. And when he would come back in from assignment, he'd just hand the, the film to the, the printers who were, you know, processing at that point, And they would take a look out the window. And if it was a bit, bit dull, they'd give it a bit extra time in the uh, developer. If it was a bit bright outside, they maybe cut back the development time a little bit more. So they, they were able to kind of work around, you know, what he did. But he always had these great, great pictures. And I remember he said to me, to take a picture, you need to keep both eyes open. And that was yeah. partly about being aware of what's going on around you. Um, and also really, you know, partly from a whole safety thing, because, you know, you, you you do want to see what's happening, who's coming close to you, what's, what's you know, developing just out of the frame. And if you're only looking at what's through the lens, you're not aware of, of you know, how this narrative around you is unfolding. So, you know, that, that, that sort of advice... And the things that George Wilkie told me really, really stayed with me. It was, it, was, it was an absolute privilege to to be there at that time in the early 80s, you know, while there was this very kind of rich, um, uh, very kind of developed sense of, of the importance of photography, the importance of newspaper photography. And, and also, you know, there was, there was, it was still a, a vibrant enough industry. There were enough photographers around, enough papers around for you to be able to make your living doing that full time which of course as time's gone on makes it you know it's much much harder now
0: if you look back at a paper back in those days if you you know you can through the bound volumes the photography that's in the paper sometimes isn't that great yeah but when you see what was submitted to the awards and these this the the breadth you know it wasn't always and it still isn't always the best picture that makes it into the paper it's it's what fits the space yes um, absolutely quite often but the herald were a broadsheet. They had lots of space, and they were kind of unapologetically aesthetic, weren't they? They they
1: loved yes. big photographs and no. I mean, I, and I think I think papers like that, the fact that they kind of held that line, they they were um, the, the 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 forerunners. Going right back to Picture Post, things like Picture Post, and also you can kind of spin it forward to things like the Independent when it you know it started. Yeah, um, and particularly in the kind of late eighties, nineties, there was that aesthetic that it should be more than just you know, a snap, more than just an illustration that, that padded out the words. And, you know, I, I, was, I, I went to uh, work at the Western Mail and the, one of the previous photographers there at the Western Mail had been Alan John, who was the launch picture editor for The Independent. And, you know, he, he'd left that impression that, um, you know, the picture editor would say to me, you know, when you go out, you know, again, I want you to be thinking about kind of beyond just that picture. But he said, I remember when Alan went out he would always come back with the goods, but there would always be a set of pictures on the roll that were something else. They were a, yeah. another aspect of that story. He said sometimes he would come back with a picture of a cow's eye. And I don't really understand what that was all about, but I knew it was important. <laughs> I knew it was, he was looking at something different. And again, that, that, that's really appealing to the idea that you're, you're giving a different perspective. On, onto a story. And and sometimes it's definitely the case when you know that there's an expectation from the editor and the deputy editors that, that this is the way a story is going. But when they see the pictures, it kind of flips the narrative on what this story is actually about. And that's of course hugely satisfying that you've you've been out there and you and you've you've you know you've you've captured something that's that's integral and something important to the story, as well as being something that's, you know, going to make people buy the paper and turn the pages and and, and read yeah. on, really. Yeah. Yeah.
0: From there, you said that you went down to Wales. I did. That gave you the opportunity when it came along to to go and photograph the fall of the Berlin Wall, is that correct?
1: That, that's right. You know, I was, I was there for six years and it was a very busy operation. There was a daily and evening paper. There was a big Saturday sports supplement. And then when the Sunday paper was launched, um, in the, the kind of late 1980s, I I, I went onto this onto the Sunday, and you know the, the, the kind of general daily rota of what you were doing was um, you'd be doing six to seven jobs a day, every day, day in day out, right. um, and traveling all over um, kind of South Wales up to up to Mid Wales. So it was a great it was a great opportunity just to perfect your technique and and also you know when when I went on later to work for the Daily Millionaire, Daily Mirror in London, there was literally no type of job I hadn't done because, you know, you're covering it all at regional level. But the opportunity to work at that level also meant that you got to form relationships with um, different organisations and different people. So when it came yeah. to the fall of the Berlin Wall, I'd already done some uh, photographs with um, various uh, regiments that are, that are based in Wales. And they, they, just one of the regiments who at that point were in Berlin, phoned me up and said, I know you're supposed to be coming out of here in a couple of months time to do, you know, as kind of a feature on, on what we're doing out here, but, um, it's getting a little bit lively. Do you fancy coming out tomorrow? So,
0: all right, wow. I, so
1: literally I said, yeah, great. And, and drove to, to RAF Bryce Norton in Oxfordshire, went over on a Hercules and, um, spent a few days there with them. Um. And and it it was interesting, the atmosphere at that point, because in some ways they, they, they wanted, from their point of view, it was a great opportunity to have the the work of this regiment reflected in, in these world events that were happening. Um, yeah. But also no. there was a real edge to the atmosphere then. There, there was, um, we tend to think it was being a very joyous event, a very happy event, but there was the thought that any minute now that, you know, the East German tanks could come rolling across
0: and, yeah. and
1: that no one really knew what the reaction to East Germany would be, that how hard the clampdown would be if it came. And so there, there, they, it, was, it was quite edgy. And I, I remember going across to the east, going through Checkpoint Charlie, which was still operating at that point, even though there were great big holes in the actual wall, um, going going across and, and basically with a reporter and being told, you know, well, you kind of do this at your own risk. And, you right. know, if something happens, I'm not sure we can, we can do anything about it. So think about that.
0: I've read um, in the past couple of years quite a lot about, uh, about the, the times around about the, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, the breakup of the, the Soviet Empire. And it's quite easy for academics to go in now and collate information And deliver it in a way that tells you a story of how this event actually happened. But while you're there on the ground, did you know that they were about to throw the gates open? Was that one possibility? Um, I believe that maybe just before it, there had been quite a few people uh, were trying to escape, and there had been quite a few people lost their lives as well, just in the the, the, the period before. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that, that that's right. You know, there was there was still this kind of shoot to kill policy going on with anybody who tried to cross the that the death zone, the area between the yeah. the wall and, and and the fence, and um, th- there was <laughs> it, th- there was a real kind of sense of menace, but there was also a sense that there was um amongst the, the population on both sides, as uh, an overwhelming sense that they wanted this wall gone. And it was almost the, the, the feeling that they had, um, the strength of numbers would overcome, you know, kind of armed intervention from any of the sides. Yeah. But I mean, many of the border guards, you know, I, I took a, a photograph of the border guard looking through the wall, talking to a, a you know, a child in, in from the West German side. And they, they they were very, very young, most of them. They you knew that they were seventeen, eighteen, nineteen years old. And and so for them yeah. that was that was all that they had known. But there was also the sense that um when they came across to the West, it, it was all just sitting there on their doorstep and it was becoming now an immovable uh you know, it was like a freight train now that that, that, that this this was gonna happen. Is what you, what you weren't sure of was whether the intervention would come from Higher that there would be, you know, just of course you we were yeah. always looking for that flatbed truck with the trips in it rolling into the corner of your eye because there was a sense okay. that you know that they they were in command, you know, whatever they said was going to happen.
0: While you're through on the the east walking about, were you sort of doing street photography, just going up and asking people if they could if you could take some portraits and see the emotion in their faces? Or
1: yeah, I mean, I think that the, the the very strong impression you got the minute you went through. Um, the wall was that time had almost stood still for East Berlin. There were huge tracts of open ground, um, and the buildings that were left standing were like you know old pieces of furniture in an empty room. You know they were yeah big flat areas where whole blocks had been erased. Um, you could see the, the you know the, the lines of of the bullet holes you know along along the maestry and the walls that were were still standing and that large parts of it haven't really changed since, you know, the, the wall went up um, and so that, that was the overwhelming expression and I think a lot of people on East side work, keeping a low profile, it was very quiet, very empty.
0: If you're in a situation like that, somewhere that's extraordinary, on one hand you might not struggle to take pictures. Mm. But on the other hand, you know everything's a picture wherever you look. You could just rattle through your film in no time at all and have nothing left when you meet someone on the way back. how do you pace yourself in a job like that?
1: Yeah, that 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 is that is a real a situation. It's, it's kind of overwhelming that that idea. Where you come and you're looking everywhere, and you everywhere you look, there you know there there's a picture. But I think you know when I was working, I was I was used to um, it was all done on film. There was no digital at that point, and so. Really, you were thinking um, you you get to you get to a point on that thirty six where you think I want to keep about always want to keep about six frames waiting. Yeah. Um, and then you know you're ready you're ready to, to change because if something pops up in front of you, um, then you know you you, have to, you the last thing you want is just is just to be there uh, changing your film. Yeah. But it was it was at that point um, the picture I took of the of the, the, the child and and the border guard was actually taken on um, a kind of little. Instamatic, which I had in my pocket right. as well, because I'd, I'd remembered a story that had been told by Eamon McCabe about being at, I think it was the Heisel Stadium, um, and he had the big long lenses, but he'd been given a, a an Instamatic-type camera to trial by Olympus, and that was the, okay. that was how he shot a lot of the pictures at Heisel, right. because obviously the rest of the kit he had was all long lenses, and... He was too close, it was all happening, you know three, four feet yeah. away from him, um, and so I had to take it to carrying that as well, so that was always my backup. so I was having a little a kind of sure shot type camera in my pocket as well, and half the time I didn't need it, but its it's it's great to know these things are there. <laughs>
0: I, uh, and just as an aside, that's the, the second week in a row that uh, Eamon McCabe has been mentioned. I was talk, talking to Callum Colvin about him last. He, he just came up in conversation, but there we, maybe we should try and get him on learning. Eh?
1: Well, he was, he was actually, when, when I went out, I went out to um, the First Gulf War. I went up again with a with Welsh Regiment. It was the Welsh Guards just in the run up to the, to the uh, First Gulf War. And the pictures that I shot when they came back, we were in a pooling arrangement with uh, the Press Association. And he, was, he published a lot of the pictures in The Guardian. And right. from that point, one of the pictures got picked up by the Victorian Albert Museum, and it went in their collection of 20th century oh. images. And it, it wasn't a war picture as such, or even a, a kind of a pre-war military type picture. It—it it was It's a picture of a, of a soldier showering in the desert. Um,
0: Yes, I, I have seen that one. Yeah, it's just it's a very kind of human moment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and that 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 was that approach, that kind of again looking the, the approach that the Guardian had, particularly Eamon McCabe had at that point, um, looking for the the different aspects of, it, like say, the human moment.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about the uh, about photographing in the the First Iraq War, but uh, we've led ourselves onto that yeah. quite neatly. So you said that you went out with that regiment again. Yeah. I was surprised. I was doing some research earlier on. And the dates of the first Iraq War were from the seventeenth of January ninety one to the twenty eighth of February. Yeah, it's quite a short period of time, really, isn't it? it? It seems like, yeah, you know, the the second Iraq War seemed to drag on for for many more years than that. It was a thing that was kind of done and dusted quite quite quickly. It's
1: yeah, ab- absolutely. I think the waiting period for that was in in a strange way, you know, longer because they they had. They had troops out sitting around waiting, you know, for a good couple of months beforehand. And, and um, I, I, didn't, I went out in the December and uh, was, was there for a little while. And I just got a tap on the shoulder one night. It was getting dark. We were all just about to go to sleep. And they said, right, it's, t- it's time to go home. And I think I knew and everybody knew that was the point at which they were going to go in. That the war was going right. to start. They were basically clearing everybody out at that point who didn't really need to be there.
0: Was it the first or the second Gulf War where the, the process of embedding uh, journalists with, with regiments was used extensively? Was that the, f- was that the first one? It, it became quite a sort of bone of contention, didn't it? That yeah, you I- might not have been seeing what you, th- they see in the whole reality.
1: Yes, that, that, that that's true. I mean, I I had I had a a, a minder basically with me the whole time, who was um, a captain in the Hussars regiment, and you know he he kind of stuck with me, it, which was great. He was actually he was actually his name his name was Captain um, uh, Roderick de Norman. He's I think he's gone on to write some uh, crime fiction actually. I think that's what he does okay. now. But he was he was with with K eighty, and at that point K could couldn't. Yeah, they wouldn't give her a visa. The Kuwaiti authorities wouldn't give her a visa to come out, and so I had, I was, I had him for uh, you know a few weeks. Um,
0: All right. Okay. And
1: yeah, they 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 kind of stuck close to you, and I, I didn't find it problematic. In some ways, it, it was fine because they had a certain amount of enthusiasm for getting you to the right place to to getting you to the right picture, um, and so I I've never felt that it was really an issue. Mostly you know, the, the people that were looking after you that, that, that with the, that embedding process were generally fine. Um, right. I'm, I'm aware that in some situations, there, there was a situation before I went to Northern Ireland at one point where there had been some knocking stories in the press about uh, initiation ceremonies and, you know, just general bad behaviour from the soldiers. Yeah. And I went out with a journalist uh, fr- from Wales. I went out with them, Jane Morgan, who now works at BBC Wales, And we were the first journalists to go out there after there'd been a series of quite negative stories. And they decided that perhaps they would show the journalists, the next lot of journalists that came out, what it was really like, how tough it was to to operate in Northern Ireland in those circumstances. So I think, you know, they were expecting something a little bit different and, you know, Jane and I turned up, hello, you know, okay. being there, being very friendly. But they, they, they decided it would be a good idea to send us out on a helicopter patrol on the border region. And so mm-hmm. we were the first journalists to do that. They put us up in a helicopter with a platoon that was going out to um, just police that border region. And that involved not landing. It just hovered and you just jumped. And it was, yeah, it, it, was, it was quite... Quite eye opening. It was a little bit brutal, um, and the conditions that the soldiers were living under, as well in in some of the barracks, as well, you know, they were they were very very sparse. But you know, it, it was it was great to experience that. It, it was it, there was no holding back at that point, and um, yeah, that, that, that was that was an interesting assignment.
0: <laughs> Do you know? As, as you're speaking there, uh, I was going to ask you about being a woman yeah. uh, in the, the photography business back then. Yeah. And it comes up there, they didn't know quite what to expect, uh, and then you turn up. Yeah. Do you think it was disarming in a way uh, to have um, two women turn up who were going to report the story yeah. in the same way, but the rep- their approach to getting the story might be slightly different <laughs> from what they'd expected?
1: Yeah, I think I think... Absolutely. I mean, you know, know, it's it's changed, changed, you know, a great deal now. But, you know, when I was mostly working, I was pretty much generally the the only uh, woman photographer, you know, in in any department. Um, And I know when I went to work for the Sunday Mirror in, in London, they were they were keen to have a woman. And I basically said to them, look, I'm not going to be shooting fashion and and, you know, features for you guys and they yeah. were like, no, 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 it's not that. It's because people will react differently to you than they will to me, to maybe a male photographer. You're less threatening. In, in a way, it, it's, it's the, the same sort of attitude that you might think um, that, that female police officers often encounter, that you can send two female police officers out to, to, you know, to break up you know, trouble, and it'll be more a case of diffusing it rather than, you know, the, the, the people involved seeing it as a challenge. And that was definitely the case, you know, for me, I, I, would, I would turn up and uh, it, was, it was generally less confrontational. I, 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 used, to, I used to say that I, I, I used the Miss Marple approach. <laughs> I, okay. was, I was a big fan of, um, of Jane Bowen as a photographer. She would turn up with her cameras in her shopping bag and just you know, sit there and, and, and nobody paid her any attention. And that, that's, that's a real gift as a photographer, if you're doing observational work. I, nobody looking at you, you know, no, you, people are ignoring yeah. you. Um, so that, that, that definitely kind of worked in my favour for sure. But the kind of the flip side of that is, I remember when I first went to, to Wales in the late 1980s, I turned up on the touchline at Cardiff Arms Park at the National Ground to photograph a rugby international for the Western Mail and you know, the officials weren't going to let me onto the pitch because women weren't allowed to go onto the pitch, you That's know, really and I, being from Glasgow, I thought he was making a joke. I laughed, but he was <laughs> deadly serious. Um, you know, I don't know this could happen. And you, per man, you could see he was, he was, yeah, he was in a deep tussle between do I offend the Western Mail, the big rugby paper or yeah. You know, do I just let this awful thing happen on this hallowed turf? Um, and in the end, he just has to what? let me on. You know, and there's nothing he could do. But it, was
0: it, there really was there really a rule that said a woman wouldn't be allowed on the turf? Was that in their constitution or something? Or? I, <laughs> <laughs> have, I, d- I suppose it might have been. at different times.
1: Yeah, do you know, I, I just I. It was, it was probably just an attitude. I don't actually think they had that down in writing, but I, I do remember <laughs> that when I, when I left about six years later, there was a moment when I came onto the turf at the national grounds and, you know, turned to see a female camera operator from the BBC. But by, by this point, the, the Welsh team had a, a female physio and there was a kind of, you know, mental high-fiving went on there between the three of us, that, you yeah. know, these attitudes. Oh, right had changed and, you know, all, all, to, all to the good. And, and it, it was very similar. You know, in, in, in the book, I have a, a female RNLI and a female police officer, you know, Shona Oliver is a female RNLI volunteer. And she came, she came about from um, seeing a, 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 a female RNLI volunteer when, when I worked in Cardiff. I never got the chance to do a story on her. I thought she was, you know, it was fascinating. At that point there weren't very many women but also I wanted to ask her about that idea um, of why, why do some people put themselves in danger for others? You know I'd, I'd seen this yeah. when I was taking photographs as well that people would you know run forward rather than run away from danger and I always thought that was, that was a kind of fascinating thing to explore.
0: We'll get back to our interview in just a minute. I wanted to give Lynn the chance to tell us what she hopes people will get from her new book.
1: Well, I hope that when people read In Dark Water, they'll get a really strong sense of the environment of the Sol Wave for Earth, both its, its beauty and, and its menace. And they'll also um, enjoy the experience of um, solving this case alongside uh, D.I. Shona Oliver and her team.
0: Do you know that area well from growing up or do you holiday there often? Uh, or is it something you had to go and research?
1: I, I did a bit of both, actually. I remember it from, from you know, the holidays there, as a child, and I've been upon um, several research trips uh, now, and um, just uh, read, reading everything you can about an area is, is, is a great way to see the different aspects of it. But it is, it's, it's lovely. I mean, it has the nickname, the Scottish Riviera. It's, it's a very, it can be a very benignly beautiful part of the world, but it also, you know, you get those Atlantic storms rolling in and it can be, uh, it can turn very quickly.
0: Uh, And In Dark Water is available from all uh, book retailers And I will place a link in the description of the podcast Okay, back to our interview Uh, But back in those kind of 80s, 90s uh, years Would you be able to go to the boss and say I found this person Uh, I want to go off and do this You know work on this story for you know a day or two days yeah um would that be possible would that fly or do you just have to turn up with the rolls of film and go i shot this when while it was out i think it'll make
1: yeah it it depends a little bit on just you know what part of the week you were were in and how, how busy you were and generally the idea was that if if you had something that you wanted to pursue an interest a story that you come across then generally you did that in your own time um when, okay. when I was when I was at Wales on Sunday, I was actually chief photographer, and I had four guys working with me. And I did try very hard to encourage them to come up with stuff because they're they're the eyes on the ground. They would see stuff being on one job. You you hear about something else, and I tried to make sure that if they said to me, "Oh, you know, I've got this idea," I would say, "Okay, right, well, you can have half a day to do that on your way back from doing something else, <laughs> and right, and okay. try and make that make that time because." Um, it, you know, it, was a, it was a practical approach as well because in the at that period of time, most papers were quite big. There was a lot of acreage to cover, and so you wanted to have, you know, as many stories in the bag that, that you could, and, and ones that could be um, dropped in in their entirety, with you know, just generally just the pictures and that that great euphemism, a deep caption, which meant the photographer yeah. was writing six paragraphs of a story, um, yeah. to go with it. <laughs> And, you know, you wanted to have as many of those in the bag as possible because um, I don't know what it's like now specifically, but um, certainly then maybe about 10% of what you were shooting was going into paper. So there was always this um, overspill, if you like, of, 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 of stories and things that would, would, would stay in the queue until they have dropped out of the queue. Um, yeah. I, I think that's probably... Because we, we, you know, we had enough bodies to do this, but the, the rate of work was, was huge. You know, there was, there was six jobs a day you were doing often on the daily paper. Um, when I went to uh, the Sunday Mirror, that, that, that dropped dramatically. But still, your, your hit rate for yeah. what was going in the paper was probably about one in 20. And it's not because this, there was anything wrong with the story or anything wrong with the pictures. They were all of exceptionally high standard. It was just what, what was, you know, what the editor wanted. What was topical that week?
0: I saw a picture posted on a, uh, a an online group on yeah. Facebook just a couple of weeks ago, and it is, and I'm not quite sure what the event was, um, but there's a massive crowd, mm-hmm. and there's a line of policemen, mm-hmm. and the police were holding the the crowd back before they let them in to see what it ever was, and there's one bloke standing right in the middle. Uh, with a, a brush over his shoulder, he looked a bit like Jack Charlton, actually, yeah. you know, with the bottom jutting <laughs> bottom lip. And it was obviously and a shovel and this brush. And his job was to, you know, shovel out the the horse dung yeah. as it was dropped. Uh, and it just what an amazing picture. And the cap you know, the guy had written he was, was the front page of the Telegraph until something better come along. Yeah. In brackets, never published. And yeah. thought, oh my goodness, why was that? You know there's so many gems lying out there and in neg form somewhere, maybe oh, yeah. in landfill now, I don't know.
1: Yeah, that, that, I mean, that, that's a bit of a problem, the fact that so much was shot and it, it never saw the papers. And th- th- there was a point in Wales where we were um, just move, moving the offices around and you know, clearing out boxes and boxes of stuff from the, uh, from the, from the, the storeroom and it was all going to go in, in the tip. And I thought, oh, I'll have a look at this. Because I'm interested in early process, there were glass plates in there, and they were oh, roll filming yeah. there. And so I pulled all this stuff out, and there was, you know, pictures from the, inve- you know, the investiture of the Prince of Wales at Carnarvon. Um, and there right. was s- unpublished material from Aberfan. And really? uh, wow. this was all just going to go in the skip. And so I managed to kind of save some of the, some of the boxes, and when one of the anniversaries came around for van, we used all this unpublished material. And it, it was all just, you know, remarkable. In some ways, the passage of time had made these historical documents. But they were also, you know, un, unseen material. And you wonder how much of that is around and how much of it is going to landfill now because you know, it's just not being saved because the the, the, the intensity of having to process all that material in terms of identify what it what it was what it was taken along with you know pictures from just run-of-the-mill stories if you like you know it's it's a huge huge job and there's you know there's definitely community projects out there that need to be done before you know please archives don't throw this stuff away we'll we'll get community projects going to, to sift this um and, and find ways to digitalise and maybe get it online because it's, it's, it's an amazing resource, that volume of material that was never seen.
0: I remember being in the Herald Library one day. Yeah. Um, I worked in the old STV building uh, for the Daily Mail at one time. Yeah. And I'd uh, been down in the library and one of the guys had been told to clear out the clear out enough space so that they could move it from... Move all this stuff into a new location, yeah. A smaller location, as it happened, uh, and that meant that, that you know these big carts that you know you you put your rubbish in, yeah, and wheel them along. Uh, I think he'd filled two of those with photographs. It was meant to be doubles and stuff that were going in it, yeah. You know, because you you might have something and filed under a person's name and under the match, so he's meant to look get these doubles out and bin it to make some space. But the boss came back and said he wasn't doing enough, so he had to clear out more and oh. it was like it wasn't like throw out what wasn't needed anymore it was fill that yeah fill this carton i looked in it and i went to pick out a print and it was the oldest man in the world it was an ap picture from 1901 but yeah. it was just ripped in half and, let, and thrown in the bin everything had been ripped in half oh, God. i thought if i had been there five minutes earlier i would have had that away you know? yeah i would never have allowed that but uh, and to be fair, the guy that was doing it had had to go to the pub and have about three or four pints before he came back to get the courage up to do it.
1: But I know that the vast majority of the material that I shot will, will have been binned. I know that the pictures from the run-up to the Gulf, Gulf War were probably binned. Um, yeah. You know, apart from one or two prints from the full Berlin Wall, they'll all have been binned, you know. It, it, and it's, it's hugely frustrating because it seems that, it, that it always, it, it's almost going out, you know, wholesale. That there's no discrimination, oh, it's old, we don't need it, get rid of it. And, you know, you, you just hope that somewhere in an archive somewhere that some of it has, has you know, survived. But yeah, yeah I'm, 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 but all the, all the kind of fine detail will have gone, you know.
0: Yes, either. as you say, those other pictures that you were, um, you would have added yeah. into the mix. Yes. Uh, to, to flesh the story out or to add add value to it as a, as yeah. we say these days yeah. So, uh, am I hearing your Siamese cat in the sorry. background <laughs>
1: that's, that's my owl, oh, your owl. I've got, <laughs> it's not a real owl it's a clock that's got an owl on it I'm sorry that's just gone <laughs> off right, okay. my cat hates that's
0: it okay. <laughs> um, so how did you come to leave photography and seek a new career as an author
1: well th- th- this is partly a kind of push pull situation you know when when i was working for the sunday mirror my kids were small um and i would you know start start at the beginning of the week with a with a pack bag in the boots and not know you know how many days i'd be away or whether i'd be home that night so it was it was becoming a a bit of an a bit of an issue and also there was um Cut back in in the amount of work that was available. Really, you know, when when you know they were cutting back the number of, of photographers they're employing. I think when I started at the mirror, there was something like twenty four photographers, and I don't think they've got any staff photographers there there now. So there was definitely a sense that you know things were things were coming to an end. But I, I'd always always been doing a bit a bit of writing, um, and really it was just a case of kind of expanding that. And I did a, an open university degree. I did an English and creative writing part-time degree. And now I've gone on to do, I'm doing a master's at University of East Anglia on their creative writing uh, program. And so it was, it was something that I was always interested in doing. But it, I think it does link back to the photography, this idea of storytelling. And there will be constantly be things coming up in, in, in the, the, the kind of um, process of writing. That, that link back to the visuals. The idea of kind of long shot, medium shot, close up is, is something that definitely app- yeah. applies to writing. And, and crime writing in, in particular, it has that same uh, kind of feel about it, that you want to be visual. Um, and, and certainly when I'm, I'm writing, I'm, I'm definitely imagining what it looks like. I, I know what the locations look like. I know what the people look like. And I will walk through scenes in a way to, to know what their eye line is and what might be going on in the background and what they might be feeling and what they might be seeing. And so um, in some ways it feels to me like it's, it's, it's a natural progression. And also, um, I, I did think about studying English when I was first studying photography back when I left school, but I'm, I'm glad it worked out this way because I now really feel like I've got things to talk about that I might not have had, you know, if I'd, yeah. to, if I'd, if I'd started trying to write books, you know, in, in my 20s. And uh, one, one of the picture editors I used to work for used to say that being a photographer, being a press photographer was like being a tourist in the human zoo. And that's, right, uh, yeah. that's a, a, a huge advantage for um, any writer and for, for a crime writer in, in particular.
0: But if you've got a camera and you ask people to do something, they'll generally do it. You can you can push people around, or you know, yeah. if you're nice enough, they, 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 you can manipulate situations in a way that you might not, because you have a, a certain amount of authority. Yes, uh, and I suppose if you're writing a situation, how do you keep it real in that sort of sense? How do you keep the reality in it by not forcing it too much? Are you is that a, a danger for you that you that you try and perfect everything or?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's a good point because you, you want, even though it's fiction, you want it to be almost faction. You want it to be as, as, as close uh, to the reality. And, and partly that comes from research. Um, that comes from looking at, you know, procedure and uh, to- talking to people who are in the situation. I mean, the, my, my character is a lifeboat volunteer. So I went and, and talked to the local lifeboat crew at um, Cleethorpe's who have a very similar kind of beat to the Solway, they have this large area of um, treacherous sand, they have industrial traffic, they have holidaymakers and pleasure yachts. And you're just trying to make it as real as possible. Um, and and, and by, by, you know, looking at the research and, and but, but also just how would you feel about this? You're constantly asking, what is the motivation? Why would people be doing this? And how would it yeah. make them feel? Um, and, and that, that, if it's something that when you go back and read it doesn't seem right and it's, kind of, it's like that nail sticking up, um, you know it has to go. You know, regretfully, that scene you've just spent five days working on, it, you know, isn't right. So it's got to go. And that's uh, that's the depressing part when you have to you know, take something out. You've spent a lot of time creatively crafting. But, you know, that's the process. And, and you know, that's just what you have to go through, really.
0: The process, if you're a photographer, is that you're probably sent to do a job unless you're working on your own assignment, but there'll be a hierarchy where the picture editor will say yes or no, and then that'll go on to to the back bench and they'll choose what they want to to use. Um, So there's a process involved there. Uh, And of course, you're self-editing because you know what's going to get used at the end of the day or the type of picture that's going to get used at the end of the day. Is it different in writing? Do you have you have to be all of those editors in in your own mind? I suppose when you're doing the, when you're coming up with the ideas and then putting them down in paper.
1: Well, you know, actually, it, it, it's not that different because you know it's 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 publishing and and so I I have an editor um, who works for the for the publisher and I also have an agent who will look at the material as well who who was a um, who was uh, you know in publishing herself and. It's, it's a case of they'll, they, will, they will read it and they will say, um, I'm not sure this works or um, I like this. Can we have some more of it? And so there is process to go through. Um, you have, you have okay. people to please sort of in the same way. But I think the thing that I found trickiest about the difference between you know, photography and writing is in photography, particularly if you come from a background where it was film-based and, and shooting transparencies as well, it all goes into the moment before you commit it to two dimensions if you like so all yeah. the work is done then whereas with writing it doesn't have to be absolutely right the first time it goes on the page so you could you, there's no such thing as a perfect sentence going you know straight onto the page so in some yeah. ways you, you're working on it once it's into two dimensions so you can probably it's a bit like going into the into the, the dark room or going onto to photoshop and 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 doing a an editing job a big edit job but there's obviously there's only so much you can move in uh, with photography um but in writing you could pretty much move anything so it's slightly more freeing from that aspect but at the same time you still want to stay true to that original um the original reason you you press the shutter or you wrote those words on your laptop you want to try and retain that immediacy and that, that freshness as well so there's, there's a limit beyond which you can't edit in either the visual medium or the written medium. So you have to think very clearly to begin with, what am I trying to say here? What is the motivation of my characters? What is the menace that they face? Um, and and, and be, be kind of clear about it. And, and that's definitely the way that um, you know, photography helped because it, it, you, you don't have any time really when you're taking photographs. You have a split second often to make that decision. And so yeah. you have to be almost hyper-aware, hyper-vigilant about what you're seeing and what's important and how you're going to process that into two dimensions from three. So there, there are similarities definitely in the process.
0: I, I suppose when you're saying that, there are different types of photography uh, as well. There are, I hadn't really thought about it too much until you, you said it there. There is this type, there's the type of photography where you... Engineer a situation, yeah. uh, maybe a, maybe a photo call or you know a portrait session, yeah. um, and then you kind of know what's going to happen. Or you might be, as you were walking about uh, East Berlin, um, w- waiting to see if a kid poked their hand through the wall. You know, I suppose there are the two aspects to that, and uh, I suppose both are very satisfying yeah. uh, when you get the, when you get the result. But maybe a bit more difficult just to capture the moment that happens just you know that that's a decisive moment because it, it, might, it might not happen nothing might happen that day
1: that's right that's right that that whole kind of decisive moment uh, you know that the Cartier-Bresson approach it, you know it's fascinating because you're 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 almost putting yourself in the hands of fate but you also have to have that um that awareness that in that almost premeditation that something is about to occur um yeah and I, I, I think, that, I think that, that, that it's the observational aspect of writing is, is the same as the observational aspect of photography, you know, I think. Because it's perfectly possible for, for two people, to, you know, to be in a situation and, and, and to see two completely different things from it. And you can say to someone, oh, did you see that? And say, oh, no, what? I missed it completely because, you know, I wasn't, my attention wasn't there. My focus wasn't there. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, in, in writing, it's, it, it's great to have an editor. I've got a, you know, a really super editor in Louise Cullen at Canalow that can have the, um, a different viewpoint to you. It's like having a great picture editor, you know, who will say to you, this, it, this is the picture, crop this, not, not this bit here. So you went out and, and shot something with a particular intention, but actually what works better is, is a different approach. And, you know, yeah. I think in all creative processes, you know, we... We, we need the editors, you know, everyone needs every, every, every creative needs a, a good editor, a sounding board, you know, someone who'll be able to spot, you know, things that perhaps, you know, you, you missed, you missed.
0: When you're out on the road as a photographer, um, you're quite often told to get there at a certain time. Which is not the same time as everyone else is told to get get a certain certain job. Um, it can quite often be hours before and I always try and if I've got nothing else on, I always try and get somewhere, you know, half an hour, an hour earlier anyway, to try and get the kind of lie of the land but there can be a lot of time when you're hanging around doesn't there um did that give you time to to read for years and years you know overnights in hotels and stuff
1: i yeah i i, I was that i was that person who always had you know the book with them um i i, I and i do remember i remember being um i didn't do much paparazzi work but i did you know be, be waiting for people to come and I remember seeing other photographers reading as well. I think maybe that's, that's something that might surprise a lot of people that, you know, <laughs> press photographers read. And I, I remember being, um, I think we were, I think it might have been Trooping the Colour, actually. And we were waiting and there was there was a couple of um, photographers who were from uh, Eastern Europe there. And at the period in the kind of 80s, 90s, there was a lot of people who were coming across from the Balkans um, who were working as okay. you know, f- freelancers. And I remember seeing a very heated argument break out about Chekhov, um, about whether or not <laughs> it should be written in the read in the original Russian, <laughs> between two two paps that were you know waiting for somebody. Um, and yeah. and <laughs> <laughs> so I mean yeah I, I I I did I definitely read that, but I read I, I read all sorts of stuff, um, not not just crime fiction, um, and you know I, I particularly. Uh, I, I think yeah, it, th- th- there's all sorts of ways that different sorts of, of art and different sorts of literature and things feed into whatever your, your you know, your, your medium is. You know, I, I think that, I think it crosses, I think they all cross-pollinate each other. I really do. I think nice. if you, you can see something in painting um, and you can see something in, in a, you know, a Leonardo da Vinci painting that makes you think about an aspect of writing or makes you think about an aspect of photography. Of you think, oh yeah, that, that, that's an interesting idea. You know, how do I adapt that? How, how can I use that, you know, to do something different with it?
0: Do you know, there was, there was a while when I used to, I know a lot of authors say that they, don't, they try not to read uh, yeah. other people's work um, where they're writing. Or And, you know, a lot of actors will say if they're reprising a role that they don't go back. and you know see who did it before because that's going to influence them there was there was for a while I used to tell myself that I wasn't going to you know read these photography I wasn't going to dive into Carter Bresson or whoever because that would influence my work and I thought get over yourself (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) you're not going to be Carter Bresson so (laughs) so just get on with it you might as well enjoy it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think you're gonna channel it in a different way. I think you know, there's 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 you know, you're never gonna do a straight copy. It's it's not kind of the way the creative process works. It's like a no. little element of it will will create a seed of an idea. And, you know, all art and, and all photography does draw influences from other things. I mean it, it's how it progresses, really.
0: And let's face it, if someone said to you, Oh, that's very caterbress on you'd be chuffed to bits, wouldn't you?
1: You would. You would. You yes. take it as a huge <laughs> <Yeah>. compliment. <laughs>
0: Yes. <laughs> Thank you to Lynn for taking the time to speak to me. We had a great conversation. And what an amazing career Lynn has had as a photographer, and what really came across is her drive and determination to succeed. Uh, Lynn sent me a copy of her book through the post, uh, so I'm reading that just now, and I can heartily recommend it. You can visit my website, chrismcnulty.co.uk, or find me on Instagram. Photographer Stocking is a papercamera.co.uk production. Please visit the website for podcasts, pinhole cameras and much, much more. If you've enjoyed the podcast, then please like, subscribe
1: or share with a friend. And thanks for listening.